Good morning, everyone. We are so glad that you're here with us today. Happy New Year, right? Hey, finally, 2021. Yay! Nothing's changed. <laughs> but Happy New Year anyway. Welcome, Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. We're glad you're with us today. Everybody connecting with us online. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, there is reason to have hope and, and look forward to another year. We're so grateful that God got us through 2020, and we are able to enter into 2021 with the hope that he gives us and the word that he gives us to guide us and direct us. We are beginning a brand new series today called Best Boss Ever. And in preparing for this series, I asked, I posted on Facebook. By the way, if you haven't done so already, like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, all that, so you can keep up with everything that's going on. But, but I asked people to give me some traits of some of the best bosses they've had, a trait of one of the best ones and a character trait or a trait of one of the worst bosses they've had. We've all had some good ones, right? Some good bosses? Uh, yeah, come on, cut them some slack. We've all had some good bosses. I'm looking around for the staff here at Lakeshore to see them, right? Uh, and we've all had some bad bosses, right? We've all had some experience with bosses that weren't always all that they should have been. And, and so I, I was interested to see what you thought made a boss a good boss and what you thought made a boss a not-so-good boss. And I ask you not to give me any names, and I could tell some of you were just itching to put the name on there, but thankfully you did not. Thank you for, for showing that restraint. So here are some good traits, and they're pretty common things, things we would probably all think about. Good traits of a good boss, supportive, compliments their employees, approachable, good listener, caring, has a servant's heart, uh, values the employees, a good teacher, patient in teaching the workers. And, and there are others, but those are some of the main ones that kept getting repeated over and over again, characters of a good boss. But then there were characteristics of a, a bad boss, and some of them were just the opposite things, right? A bad listener, a micromanager. Don't, don't you hate that when they give you something to do, they give you the guidelines, and then they just over you the whole time, micromanaging everything that you're trying to do. Not that anybody I've had ever did that, but it would be aggravating, I think. Undervalue the employees. That's a hard one, isn't it? When you just don't feel appreciated by your boss, you just don't feel like they even care about you. Uh, lazy. I don't know how many of you ever had a lazy boss, but they're good at barking out orders, but they don't do much themselves, and they expect you to make them look good. Insulting? Uh, that, that's not good, is it, for them to be insulting? Uh, a bad temper. I don't know if you've ever had a boss with a bad temper, but, boy, that can be discouraging, too, when you have to walk on eggshells around them all the time, afraid that you're going to mess up. They're going to just jump all over you if you do. Uh, not a good teacher. Uh, you know, they, they tell you to do something, but they don't give you any help learning how to do it if you've never done it before. Or they threaten you even. I've, I, there are some who put that down, that they've had bosses just threaten them all the time. You know, get your, I'm going to fire you or whatever all the time. That's all they did is threaten them. I'm going to cut your pay or whatever if you don't get this done. So obviously all of these things, and you could add more to the list, but all of these traits are traits that, that we feel like if we're going to be working under someone and their authority over us, we would like for them to be this kind of person. We would like for them not to be that kind of person, right? We, we all have 
our own opinions about what that should be. But there's some general things that we would probably all agree on. Well, when it comes to the new year, I know I think this year fewer people made resolutions about what they were going to do this year. I just think it was because I can remember back last New Year's, I started the year with a sermon series called 2020 Vision. And in January and February, that fit really well. But in March, everything changed. Tornadoes, the coronavirus, all of those things hit, right? So, so we had this vision about what we thought the year was coming. Now, now, don't get me wrong. A lot of what we talked about in those vision casting uh, messages still hold true, but, but it changed how we were going to do it, how, how we could accomplish those things. It, we may have had a plan to do those things, but that plan got turned upside down. But the plan wasn't bad, and God does still want us to plan. But I think a lot of us recognize that resolutions in and of themselves don't guarantee that anything's going to happen. We, we, I saw a study again uh, yesterday morning on the news that said that, uh, I forget the percentage, it was something like 40% of resolutions that were made are broken in the first two weeks of the new year. The first two weeks, right? So, so just making the resolution doesn't really mean that everything's going to be what it ought to be. And even if we go more than two weeks, it doesn't mean that on our own power and our own abilities, we can accomplish all those things that we wanted to accomplish or make all the changes that we wanted to make. But, but today, I'm going to introduce this idea of best boss ever, ever. And the idea is this. I think one thing we could all do that will make 2021, and however long God gives us, more what it ought to be, is to resolve to come under the right teaching the right authority in our lives to not try to do this on our own. I mean, we've seen how quickly and easily our plans can be just totally ruined, haven't we? And again, it doesn't mean you shouldn't make plans, but it means you you need to make plans with the understanding that our plans aren't really the authority. Our plans don't really control what's going to happen. We plan in light of what we think things are going to be like, and that's good, but things can change rapidly. So what we need to do is have a body of teaching and authority that we go to and we come under and we follow no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how much things change, no matter what pandemic comes along or, or bombing in downtown Nashville or whatever comes up. there's a body of teaching, a body of authority over us that we are going to come under consistently. And that's our real plan for this year. We're going to let that authority rule over us. But then the question comes in, well, who should we give that authority to? What teaching should we come under? I'm not one of those pastors that would tell you, well, the only good teaching out there is the Bible. That's not true. There's other good teaching out there. There is. Uh, Other philosophers that had some good teaching, some good philosophies. Now, I think they they failed miserably in some of the critical areas, but but some of their teaching is good. And, And so the world is out there trying to sort through 
they're listening to, to people on the news. They're listening to what celebrities are saying you should do with your life and how you ought to live your life. They're, they're listening to their professors at college telling them what they ought to do. Their teachers in high school, they're listening to them. They're, we're listening to all these different voices coming at us saying, here's what your life should look like. So how do we choose which authorities to listen to? Which ones to come under? Who do we allow to have influence over us this year? I mean, authoritative influence over our lives. And I just got the idea, well, really what we're talking about is this idea that they're going to be the boss of us this year. Who are we going to allow to be the boss of us this year? Uh, I, I love it when a kid gets to that place. I don't love it. I'm being sarcastic where they say something to a parent or a grandparent or some authority figure. You're not the boss of me, right? Uh, man, I, I can't, but you know, <laughs> my parents would have laid me out if I'd said that. They would have. But here's the bottom line. Somebody is going to be the boss of you. But the good news is you get to choose. You get to choose who's going to be the boss of you. And I love that when we're looking at who we would allow to have that place in our lives, we know certain character traits we want to have in that person. We want them to be certain kinds of leaders, certain kind of authority figures, certain kind of boss that, we're willing, that we would love to come under their authority, their rule, their control in our lives. So this message today is called The Boss of Me. We're going to be looking at an encounter in Luke chapter 9, if you want to be turning there, some teaching uh, from Jesus in Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 18. Here's the setting. Here's what happens. Once when Jesus was praying in private, he did that often, by the way, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. What do you say? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Strictly, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. And on the third day... Be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is saying that when it comes to coming under authority, you get to choose. And so he asked this question to get them to understand why they should choose to come under his authority. Why they should choose to let him be the boss of their lives. You see, when he says, whoever wants to be my disciple, that word disciple means a disciplined follower who comes under the teaching of that teacher. You're letting them have that place in your life where they can rule and have authority over you. That's what a disciple does. But you get to pick which teacher, which boss, which body of teaching 
you allow to be that authority in your life. And though you're free to choose, you're not free from the consequences of your choice, right? Whichever choice you make here, whatever those teachings lead you into, whatever that person leads you into, you have to suffer the consequences of it. You either get the benefits of it or the negative consequences of it by whatever choice you make on who you're going to allow to have that place to speak into your life that way. So Jesus starts out with his identity. That's the first thing we want to look at today is Christ's identity. Because when we understand who he is, I think it makes the choice very clear, crystal clear, on why we should allow him to be the boss of us. What, what gives him the right? What, why should we look to him as the one who rules over us? Well, Jesus first asked, well, what does the world say about who I am? Remember, it says, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus wanted to know, what, what are people saying about me? What, what's the buzz out there? Okay. Uh, what's the rumor that, about, about me that's floating around out there? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Now, obviously, what they're saying is that he is like the reincarnation of these people, like, like he's, them, he's them reappearing. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now that sounds kind of odd to us that they would be guessing those things, but in their culture there was this idea uh, that maybe uh, God would send one of those people back to teach, to, to, to guide, to direct them in their lives. And everybody they talk about here, they're all good people. So are they saying bad things about Jesus at this point? No, they're not. They're not saying, Jesus, you're, uh, the world is saying you're evil, you're, you're terrible, you're awful. That's not what they were saying about Jesus. What the world is basically saying about Jesus is what so many people in the world today say about Jesus. Well, he's a good teacher. Don't you hear that all the time? He's a good teacher among a lot of other good teachers. He's a good teacher. He had a lot of good things to say, that Jesus guy, you know. There's some stuff I like about what he said. I mean, almost anybody in the world today would say that about Jesus. Not everybody. There's some exceptions. But, but the majority of people in the world would say Jesus had some good teachings. They would acknowledge that. Just like I've acknowledged, there are other good teachers out there too. I, I will acknowledge that. There are other good teachers out there. So why would Jesus be the one among all the good teachers that we would say he gets to have that place in our lives where he's going to be the authority? He's going to be the one that rules. He's going to be the one that I submit to the teachings of. Why would it be him? So in the world, what we have to understand is, is a lot of people were saying, even at the time Jesus was alive and teaching on the earth, they were saying, well, he's a good teacher. He, he, he may even be, a lot of them were saying, he may even be from God as a teacher, from God. But that doesn't set him apart, does it, from all the other good teachers that God had sent their way. That doesn't make him the one that stands out among all the others. So Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't, he didn't just ask, well, what does the world say? He also asked them, 
But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And that's what I want to look at under, under this first point here is what does Simon Peter say in response to that? When he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anybody, the scripture says. Now that phrase, God's Messiah, is kind of the condensed version of what Peter said. Uh, God's Messiah has a lot packed into it that, that is not really spelled out in, in this passage. In Matthew's gospel, it's spelled out a little bit more. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ and Messiah, that's the same thing. It's just two different ways of saying the same thing. The Christ is the Messiah. It's another word for the Messiah. So, so Peter is saying, all right, here's something about you as a teacher that separates you out from all the other good teachers out there. Because you as a teacher are also this position, Messiah, Christ. That's not the same as all the other teachers. In fact, none of the others even claimed to be Christ or Messiah. Now, there have been others make that claim, but, but the other people the world was talking about at that time weren't saying that about, about any of those other teachers. They didn't think they were the Messiah. And now Peter is saying, but I recognize you as this set-apart, distinctly different teacher as the Messiah of the living God. Now, now, the place where Jesus is doing this teaching, all around them would be idols to dead gods, all around them. And so in the middle of that setting, he says, but you're the Christ of the what kind of God? Living God. See, so setting him apart more distinctly as a teacher set apart from all the other teachers. The Christ, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Simon Peter gives an answer. That's the real question about whether or not you should let Jesus have rule and authority over you in your life. That's the third thing under this first point, and that's this. Who do you say Jesus is? See, that's what Jesus was asking, but what do you say? That's where it comes down to. That's, that's, that's where you have to make a decision about Jesus. And here's what you need to know about deciding who Jesus is when you decide for yourself. One thing you can't say about Jesus legitimately is that he was just a good teacher. Jesus takes that away. That's not even an option. He totally removes the possibility that he was just a good teacher. Look at what he says in verse 22 of Luke 9. Remember, the Son of Man, he calls himself the Son of Man, must suffer things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed, and on the third day do what? Be raised to life. You see, he said, I'm not just a good teacher like the others. I'm going to conquer death. He claimed that for himself. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. He has eliminated the possibility that you can look at him and say, well, yeah, I like his teachings. They're pretty good teachings. Either he's God or he's a liar. Only two choices we've got. 
Either he's God or he is a terrible person who lied and deceived everybody. That's not a good teacher, friends. I don't care what other good things he said. If he lied about who he was as the son of God, then he is not to be respected or followed in any way. That's the bottom line. So we have to decide. Who do you say Jesus is? I believe the evidence is overwhelming that he's the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Every one of those apostles said he was the Christ, the Messiah. They gave their lives to it. Even when he was killed on the cross, they still proclaimed him as the risen Lord and Savior of the world, the Messiah. And thousands came to believe in him and follow him on the day the gospel was preached for the very first time. So we have to answer that for ourselves today. Who do you say that I am? Because if he is the Messiah, then Jesus and Jesus alone has the right to rule over us. Nobody else does. Nobody else should hold that position for us than the one who conquered sin and death for us. The one who is God with us, who came to us in the flesh. See, that sets him apart as the only one that should have that place of authority over us because that puts every other teacher on the same level as us. They had some good philosophies, some good ideas. Even, even any one of us in the room have some good ideas occasionally, right? We have some good philosophies about life. We've learned some things that are good things that we could share with other people. So we're just as as authoritative as any other teacher who comes up with some good philosophy. So you could say, I'm going to rule my own life, or I'm going to follow this teacher or that teacher. You can choose that. You can choose who you're going to come under. But Jesus is saying, I've given you evidence to show you that I am the one who deserves to be in that position in your life. I'm the one whose teaching you should be following. Now, there's a lot of reasons for it, but here's, here's what we have to know. If he's the Messiah, and he did conquer sin in the grave, that's what makes him the Savior, the Messiah, right? If he did that for us, then that tells you how much he loves you because he went to the cross for you. It tells you that his philosophy of life comes from eternal perspective as God, the creator, so who knows better than God how our lives ought to work than the creator God who made us the way we are because it shows that he's eternal. If he existed before he came, if he existed after we killed him on the cross, then that makes him eternal. That gives him a perspective that no other teacher has. He should have that place of authority because of his eternal perspective. And it tells us he's got an answer for sin and death and all of us have done what? Sinned. And we'll face death, all of us. No other teacher can do that. No other teacher has those answers. They may have some fun teachings, some great philosophies, but they don't have the evidence to back up any answer for sin and death that we all face. None of them. Why should I let Jesus be my boss? Because he's the only one I can trust to have the answers that I need 
for my life. He's the only one. Nobody else has been able to do what Jesus did. So going into this new year, we have to make a decision. Are we going to let him be our boss? And if he is the Messiah, then he has every right to be our boss. That leads to the second thing we're going to talk about today, and that is in light of that, if we decide he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then immediately there comes to us our responsibility in light of that, our responsibility to him. We live in a culture today, even in the church, where we've made this idea of being a disciple of Jesus so shallow so non-demanding, so non-committal. We use terms like only believe, right? As long as you believe. And we teach philosophies like, well, once saved, always saved. It doesn't matter what you do now. If you got saved, you're okay. And when you read what Jesus taught, it doesn't sound like that at all. In fact, it sounds quite different than that. Just in this passage we just read today. Look at verse 23 of Luke 9 to 26. He said to them all, who's the exception here? Nobody. All right. So he said to them all, whoever, who does that include? Everybody. Whoever wants to be my, what's that word? Disciple, and we're breaking this down, right? Whoever wants to be my disciple, a disciple is a disciplined follower of a teacher. The people who've decided he's the teacher, I'm going to come under his authority here, okay? If you want to do that, here's what he says, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? He adds this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This seems really paradoxical when you listen to a lot of preachers in the church in America today. It just doesn't fit what a lot of them are saying. Most of them are, your best life now, right? It's all good. And Jesus is recruiting disciples. Now, I, I read about another pastor who talked about this, and it reminded me that sometimes I thought I'd like to be a coach. In fact, I've, I've coached Little League and things like that, and I like coaching sports. And, and I thought, well, you know, if I wasn't a pastor, maybe I'd like to be a coach. And, and, and then I got to thinking about it. Well, I could only go to coach at a certain level because I'd be a terrible recruiter. I would be a terrible recruiter. And here's why. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it sound pleasant to come under my coaching. I'd say, man, it's going to be hard. I'm going to make you work hard. I'm not going to cut you any slack. I'm going to treat everybody the same. Uh, I'm not going to give you a trophy just for showing up. You know, I'm going to tell them all of that. And that's not what most parents want to hear if they want to get their kid under a coach, right? They want to hear, oh, man, I'm going to make you the star. I'm going to give you the privileges. I'm going to make sure you've got everything you need. I'm going to help you get to the pros. They like hearing all of that stuff. Well, in this passage, Jesus is recruiting disciples. Do you know how he talks about recruiting you to be his disciple? It's all going to be good. Life's going to be wonderful. You're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. You're not going to have any problems. Is that what Jesus says if you're going to be his disciple? No. In fact, there are three recruiting words that he uses 
or concepts that he uses that seem to go against the idea of recruitment. The first word is self-denial. Self-denial. He says, if you're going to follow me as a disciple, you must first deny yourself. We don't like that. None of us like that. Deny, having to deny ourselves anything. We are in this instantaneous world society where, where everybody caters to making sure you get what you want when you want it. That's the way kids are being raised today. You never have to go without anything. You never have to sacrifice for the good of the family. It's all about you. I just saw an ad before Christmas. It just it amazed me. I had to go back and look at it again. I had to do the math in my head. It said you could get 0% interest on this car for 84 months. 84 months. You know that's seven years? How many of you are going to like making payments on a car you've been driving for over six years now and you're still making payments on it? It's ridiculous, but you could get the car now because we stretched it out longer. You don't have to wait. You don't have to deny yourself getting this new car because we'll stretch it out as long as it takes to get that payment where you need where you can drive that car now, right? We don't have to deny ourselves hardly anything. Now, there are consequences that go with that, but we can still do it if we choose to. But Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, it's going to require self-denial. You can't have it your way all the time. There are things you're going to want that don't go with what's best for you. You see, that's why I love him being my boss. As he's a boss who really cares enough about me to want only what's best for me. That's the amazing thing about this boss. Not every boss feels that way. A lot of bosses are looking out for themselves or for the bottom line, for the company or whatever. But this boss really cares about you and about me. And he says, I, I want you to have self-denial and trust me in what I'm telling you because I really have your best interest at heart when I tell you these things. When I say don't go there, don't do that, or do this instead, I'm doing it because I love you and I want what's best for you. The more you know him that way, the easier it is to let him rule over you when you know he's really got your best interest at heart. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, first of all, he says we are foreigners and exiles. Do we think of ourselves that way? No, we're very much at home here. We've made ourselves very much, especially in America. We love, and I love my country too. I, I love being American. I, I feel blessed that I was born in this country, raised in this country, lived in this country. I love that. It's a great country. But we begin to think of ourselves as Americans, even more so sometimes than children of God who belong to an eternal kingdom. And that's why Christians can get mad at each other and divide themselves over politics in our country. It's because we've gotten so attached to this world that we've put our hope in the things of this world instead of the eternal things of God. But Peter reminds us, you're foreigners here. You're aliens here. This is not your home for eternity. You need to rethink that. Love where you are if you love it. That's great. But don't think of it as your home 
eternally. He says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your souls. Sinful desires. Now, if we come under the authority of Jesus, then who gets to teach what things are sinful and what things are not? Who, who, gets, who gets that authority? Jesus does. Jesus gets to have the say-so about what is sin and what is not sin. Now, I believe he, he deservedly has that right because he's the Messiah. That's what I believe about Jesus. That's who I think he is. So if he's the Messiah, I think he knows better what's good for us and what's not good for us, what's healthy for us and what's unhealthy for us. I think we should listen to him and let him have that authority in our lives. So he says, you're going to have sinful desires. The flesh is naturally inclined towards sin. The Bible often translates this, the sinful nature of the flesh. Okay, the Bible talks about it over and over again. In the flesh, we all have an inclination toward sin. I love how the culture has missed it over and over and over again. We have this idea that if you just let people have freedom and do what they want to do, it's all going to be good. But people are naturally inclined toward what? Sin. Even the people we call good people have a sinful nature in the flesh. They do. All of us do. And left to ourselves, we will drift toward, not righteousness, we will drift toward sin. And so he says, you need to have self-denial because you've got this sinful nature in you. And you need to not be letting yourself be ruled by the sinful nature. Instead, I want you to come under the control and the leading of my spirit because my spirit will lead you into the truth of what's good and what's not good. It will cause you to turn from sin and to righteousness. If Jesus is Lord, he gets to decide what's okay and what's not okay what's good and what's not good. And yet, even in the church in America today, churches are teaching that what God says is good is evil and what God says is evil is good. And it's as clear as day. And they're taking Scripture and turning it around and misrepresenting it and, and, and misinterpreting and, and, and retranslating it to say something it doesn't really say. But if we are his disciples, he gets to be the teacher, not us. We don't get to teach him what we think is right. We listen to what he says. We come under his authority. So he uses words like self-denial. And then he uses a, a, a concept of sacrifice. Man, he's calling us to make sacrifices. Listen to his words again. Take up your cross. How often? Daily. Oh, man. If he didn't put the daily part in there, it wouldn't be so bad, right? Every now and then I'll walk over and pick up a cross, but don't ask me to do that every single day to take up a cross. You see, back then the cross wasn't a beautiful piece of jewelry for us to wear around our necks or to put in earrings in our ears. The cross was a symbol of absolute disgrace and capital punishment, the most cruel, painful form of execution known to man. That's what the cross was. So he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross daily. The concept is you have to give up yourself. The concept is deeper. It is you have to die to yourself daily to come and follow me. 
got to get ourselves off the throne, right? And replace ourselves with Jesus. Or some other teacher that we put there. we got to get them off and put Jesus there. We have to be willing to sacrifice. John 10, verse 17, we learn something about his sacrifice. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. You know what he's saying? What I'm talking about here is a voluntary sacrifice. It's not where you're going to be made to do it. It's where you have to choose it every day. Here's the thing about God. He's not going to make any of us obey him. Follow his teaching. He's not going to make any of us do it. He's going to allow us to suffer the consequences of not doing it. But he's not going to make us do it. So if we're going to follow him today, what have we got to choose to do today? Take up our cross. But then if we're going to follow him tomorrow, what have we got to do tomorrow? We have to decide again today, that day, I want to take up my cross today. It's a daily choice that we have to make. If you work night shift, it's every night, whatever your schedule is, right? Whatever it is, we take up our cross daily, he says. My life verse is Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a, what's the phrase? Living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says, here's how that plays out. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Again, we have so misunderstood the term worship in our culture that we've made it about a gathering on Sunday for an hour or so or about just the music part of the gathering. That's the worship part, right? We even call the person who leads the music the worship pastor, right, at a lot of churches. That's the title they have. That's not the title we use, but that's the title most churches use. If you go to a worship conference, you know what it's about? Music. That's what the worship conference is about. And the Bible never defines worship that way at all. Now, singing praises to God is an act of worship. I'm not saying it's not. It is. It's a beautiful, wonderful act of worship that I love. We should embrace it. But if we limit our concept of worship to that, we have so missed the boat. Here's what he says. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, what's the word? Worship. Where you present your bodies because the body has a natural inclination toward what? Sin. So you present it to God instead of to sin. That is your spiritual act of worship. Where you turn from sin and you come under the teachings of God. That's worship. I've said it before. I've heard it a long time. The problem with living sacrifices is we keep crawling off the altar. We keep crawling off the altar. We give ourselves to God, and then what do we do? We turn right around and give ourselves to sin. We say we love God, we're going to follow God, and we go back to our sin. He says, take up your cross how often? Daily. He's not asking for perfection, by the way. He provides perfection through his grace 
his blood, his payment that he made. But he's asking us to make a choice about who's going to be the boss of our lives, ourselves or the world's philosophy or him. Who's going to be the boss for you, for me? Here at Lakeshore, we understand God's call to self-denial and sacrifice. So we have three basic things we call people to that we focus on. We try to keep it simple at Lakeshore. We work hard to keep simplifying because if you don't, the church can get so overwhelmed with programs and activities that it it just takes the joy out of your life as a Christian. So we keep it really simple. Connect, grow, and serve. Three things. We believe they're very scriptural. Here at Lakeshore, our goal is to get you to connect to Christ and each other through Christ. You see, if you connect to Christ, it automatically connects you with others who are connected to Christ. To connect to Christ means you make the choice that he's going to be your Lord, your boss. You're going to be his disciple. That's what it means to connect to Christ. Okay. And then the next thing is to grow to maturity in Christ. Jesus doesn't want you just to start out to follow him. He wants you to continue that process of following him, learning what he teaches, and then obeying what he teaches. And that grows you up into maturity. Until you, the goal of the disciple is to grow up to be like the teacher. So as we grow to maturity in Christ, we become more and more like Christ in that growth process. We do that through teaching on Sunday morning and through life groups that they get together for teaching and seminars and things like that that we offer on different subjects where you can learn and grow but we encourage you to have a daily time of growth and devotion too on your own because we can't do all of this for you so you commit to connecting and to growing and then the third element is serving you see if you grow up to be like Jesus Jesus said I did not come to be served but to what serve see becoming a Christian doesn't mean I I went forward on Sunday or I got baptized and I got my name on the church roll so I'm a Christian now No, a Christian is a disciple of a teacher, and that teacher is Jesus. You are a disciplined follower of that teacher if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. It requires a level of commitment beyond just joining a church somewhere, just maintaining your membership on the roll somewhere. Now, the good news is this boss that we do this for loves us. And what's only what's best for us. So anything he tells you to deny, there's a reason for it. And the reason he's telling you is because he loves you. He doesn't want you to have the pain or the heartache or the loss that it would cause in your life if you go down that road. And when he tells you to do something, it's because he loves you. He wants you to enjoy the benefits of doing that thing in your life that he's telling you to do. Because it's going to bless you and bless others through you if you do that. I know as a parent, one of the hardest things has always been something like when I, when, when I, when I tell my child, I, I'm telling you this for your own good or I'm doing this for your own good, right? Does a child believe that at the time usually? No, but a loving parent, do they mean that? Yeah, yeah, they mean that. The reason I'm restricting you from that is because I care about you so much. I don't want you to go there because it's going to hurt you or hurt others if you do it. That's why I'm putting that boundary there, that restriction there for you. Boy, we don't like those boundaries, but they're there because of love. And when you get to know Jesus well, you get to know that he loved you so much he would die on the cross for you. So any boundary he sets for you, it's set out of love. And any command he gives you, it's given out of love. 
That's the motivation behind it because he wants what's best for you. And that leads to the, the beginning step to all of this is submission. Jesus calls for submission, self-denial, sacrifice, and submission to follow me, he says. I love what James says in James 4, 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. To get ourselves purified to where God wants us to be, to represent him well, it starts with submitting to the authority of God in your life. That's where it all starts. You decide, Jesus, I'm ready for you to be the boss of me. I know you're the best boss ever, and I'm glad to have you as my boss. So I'm going to come under you and let you have that place in my life. It's a submission of yourself to him. Back in Acts chapter 2, we have that first preaching of the gospel, and Peter stands up from among the other apostles. He preaches that first gospel sermon, and he finishes up the sermon in verse 36. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both, what, what terms does he use? Lord and Messiah. Those two terms are equally important. Lord means ruler, the boss. Messiah means the Savior, deliverer. Here's the problem with those two things, though. Can't be one without the other. You can't have him as Savior if you're not willing to submit to him as Lord. Those two things go together. But what a Lord he is. What an amazing Lord he is. A Lord who would give himself up for those that he lords over. Then he says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And that's the question, right? For this year, for any year, for this day, for any day, that's the question. What do we need to do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This promise is for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today, as we begin this new year as your followers. And if there are those hearing the message that, that are trying to decide who is going to be the one they follow, we thank you for reminding us just who Jesus really is. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the Christ. He's the Savior who gave himself. And he calls us to follow after him and his teachings out of love a love that was willing to give up everything so that we could have him as our Lord. Father, I pray that if there's anyone who needs to make a decision to, to allow him to have that place in their lives, that they would begin this year surrendering themselves to the one who surrendered himself for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.